muted myself. There we go. Just in case you guys thought we didn't have anything going on. Uh, if you're not involved in something here at South Point, we have a lot of opportunities to get plugged in, get to know people, and set up some roots in this community, and it is a community worth setting up roots in. So I hope you'll find a way to get plugged in. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin, and I'm on staff here at South Point. And I just want to start this morning by asking you a question. And after I ask you this question, I just kind of want you to chew on this question as we read through the text this morning. And the question is this. The question is, who is God to you? Who is God to you? I mean, we all have a picture of God. We all have our own notions about him. Even atheists. Atheists say, whatever this is, not real. Like they, they have this picture of God that they have in their head and they've rejected that image. You also have people who just believe in like a higher power, like something's out there, uh, but it's up to you to decide what. And you can basically believe whatever you want to believe and that will be all right. But the big problem with our answer to the question, who is God to me, is that very often, even when it comes to Christians, our picture of God can be incomplete or inaccurate. And so the truth is, who is God to you isn't really the question we should be wrestling with. The question should be, who is God? Who is God? Because if God does exist, then he exists on his terms and he determines who he is, not us. And so who God is to you doesn't really matter. In reality, the God of the Bible says, on your own, you have no idea who I am or what I'm like and no idea how I work. The God of the Bible says, my ways are nothing like your ways, and my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and so you can't measure your understanding of me by how you are. The God of the Bible says the difference between you and I is like the difference between heaven and earth. But, but then God does this amazing thing, and he gives us his word, both on the pages of the Bible and in the flesh through Jesus Christ, and he says, if you'll chase after me through my word, I'll show you who I am. And we should want a relationship with the one true God and not just whatever image we've created of God ourselves. Because here's the massive problem with believing in who is God to you. The problem is that whoever God is to you, if you've created a false or warped image of who God is, then, then you're, creating a, you, you're worshiping a God who actually doesn't exist. And so to pray to a God who doesn't exist, not only does he not answer, but he, he, he can't even hear you because he doesn't exist. He's not real. It's a false image. Or when your life begins to fall apart and you put all of your hope in a God who doesn't exist, he can't do anything for you because he doesn't exist. It's a false image. And even more dangerous, if you find yourself as a part of a community or church that is worshiping a false or warped image of God there eventually could come a day when you look around and say, it's fake. It's all fake, and it's always been fake, and you can actually walk away from the church and from God, maybe forever, and we're currently seeing that happen in pretty heartbreaking numbers in the American church. And then, worst of all, if you spend your life following just whoever God is to you, if you spend your life following a God who doesn't exist, there's going to come a day when you stand before the one true God, and he's going to I never knew you. Get away from me. And so when I ask, who is God to you, it's not because I'm overly interested in your personal hot take about who he is. 
I ask you that question because I want you to question if the God that you believe in is actually the one true God or just a version of him you've warped to work for you. And so the challenge today is this. The challenge today is that we take God out of whatever me-sized box we've been trying to force him into and instead of worshiping him for who we think he should be, that instead we begin to worship him for who he actually is. Are y'all up for it? couple of you. Let's pray, and then we can go to the text. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we have an opportunity to know you and know you completely and clearly and have this amazing relationship with you that you breathe this life into us and give us a new identity. God, I pray as we go to your word that you give us this clearest possible picture and you draw us closer to yourself through it. Let this not just be a talk, but an opportunity to connect with the God of the universe. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 today as we continue on in our building blocks series. So if you have your Bible, you can start turning there, Acts chapter 14. If you don't have your Bible, you can grab an Acts journal if there's one in the seat in front of you, and I believe we're on page 82 there. If you don't have neither one of those things, and don't worry, we'll have the words up on the screen. Now, as we continue in this building block series in Acts chapter 14, we're going to be following the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas, which we started looking at the past couple weeks. And as we look at their story this week, we're going to see them traveling into two cities, Iconium and Lystra. So Paul and Barnabas are continuing to spread the message of Jesus into the cities Iconium and Lystra, and we're just going to jump into it. Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 1, it says this. It says, now at Iconium... They entered together, Paul and Barnabas, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it, Paul and Barnabas learned of it, and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So up in this point in the book of Acts, we've seen that governing authorities have tried to kill and have killed Jesus' followers the rulers in the area, but we've just hit a turning point where even the general population is trying to kill them. You know, for whatever reason, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings out the very best in humanity while simultaneously bringing out the very worst. For so many people, they've experienced unity and community and life around the gospel, but a lot of us have also experienced a great division because of the gospel, be it family members, friends, co-workers, whoever it is, For some people, the moment you start talking about Jesus Christ being the only way to experience salvation and freedom, there will be people who hear this with open hearts and accept it, but then there are also going to be people who bristle against that and hate you for it. Now, if you water it down, if you water it down to just believing in whoever God is to you is fine, very little opposition. Very little opposition, but once it becomes about Jesus and his cross being the only way, I mean, stand by. People have feelings about it. So Paul and Barnabas leave Iconium and they flee 
to Lystra. The text goes on in verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, saying in their native language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So we have this miraculous healing. Not unlike the healing that Jesus did in Jerusalem. And this man who never walked since birth is miraculously healed. Like he just jumps up and starts walking. And immediately, as is often the case with miraculous healings, like the crowd just erupts and is blown away by it. It says they start chanting and cheering, but they're cheering in their native language. And Paul and Barnabas can't really understand them, so they don't really know what's going on. But then one of the chief priests of a Greek god, Zeus... He brings out a sacrifice to them and offers it to them and suddenly it dawns on them, oh, they think that we're Greek gods. Now, I've never been mistaken for a Greek god. <laughs> Probably no surprise to you, but what you need to understand is that Paul and Barnabas aren't in Jerusalem anymore. And so they're, they're no longer dealing with people who would even have an understanding of the God of the Old Testament, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, all they, they don't know anything about that. This is all completely new to them. These people, for them, their understanding of God was that of Greece. The gods lived in the clouds and they served basically only themselves. That they would come down from time to time to kill or sleep with or manipulate human beings, but otherwise there wasn't much good about the gods that they knew. But now they see this miracle and instead of hearing Paul and Barnabas for what they're saying, instead they filter it through what they already know and they say, wow, these guys are Greek gods and they've come down to visit us. Now why do they do this? Why do they have to filter it through their own lens instead of just listening to Paul and Barnabas and hearing them for what they're actually saying? Well, they do that because it's really hard to move away from your own preconceived notions about who God is and embrace him for who he actually is. And the thing is, it's just as true as for these individuals from Lystra as it is for us today. You know, some of you guys, man, some of you have cemented your idea of who God is into a box. And the thing is, almost always when we do that, your idea of who God is, it almost always reflects your own personality and how you think. We think God is like us. Almost always it's us trying to make God in our image. And we can decide this is who God is and this is what God does and this is what's important to God. And, and you know what? No matter what the Bible says, I'm going to find a way to make it fit my own understanding of God. And if these words make me uncomfortable and demand that things change in my life, then I'm either going to ignore those words or I'm going to warp them to fix my own narrative. And so you can have your box with the God that you've created in your image and you can refuse to stray away from that. But I have news for you. It doesn't matter how much you try to wrap up your own idea of God in Jesus' wrapping paper. The truth remains that no amount of Jesus' wrapping paper will make your image of God right. You see, you can have the right name, 
but the wrong God. You can have the right name, but a false understanding of who he is. And so we can read about these Lyconian people and say, ha it's really funny that they think Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, that they would confuse them for God. But the truth is, we take it one step further and we actually confuse ourselves for God. We claim to have faith in Jesus, but the second Jesus starts to make us uncomfortable, we begin to give him a makeover until eventually we can find ourselves worshiping someone who looks a lot like us and barely anything like the actual Jesus we find in Scripture. It can sound like this. It can sound like, you know, I I can continually live in sin and it doesn't matter. Like I can continue looking at porn or getting drunk or hooking up with people or obsessing over the world and what they think of me or whatever other thing that has its claws in me and I don't have to walk away from that. And at the end of the day, it'll still be all right. You know who says that? You or the enemy, not Jesus. And so if that's your picture of God, you might be worshiping yourself. Or you can say, you know what? I can continue to harbor bitterness and resentment towards this person and withhold forgiveness. Like, that's fine. They deserve that. I can continue to look down on people who don't think the way that I think. I can continue to treat people on the other side of the political spectrum as if they're the problem and they're a waste of space. You know, I can continue to leave a wake of brokenness and hurt everywhere I go as long as I do it in Jesus' name. And at the end of the day, it'll still be all right. You know who says that? You or the enemy, but not Jesus. And so if that's your picture of God, you might be worshiping yourself. Or what about this? I can have a relationship with God without ever opening his word and connecting with him. I can have a relationship with God without ever spending any time in prayer talking to him or just being quiet and listening. I can have a relationship with God without ever serving anyone else. I can have a relationship with God without ever letting down my guard and letting Jesus in. I can have a relationship with God without ever actually trusting God in any area of my life. You know who says that? You know who acts like that? We do. That's not what Jesus instructs, though. And so if that's your picture of God, you might be worshiping yourself, just as these Lyconian people are worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And the text goes on, as Paul and Barnabas respond to these people worshiping them, it says this. It says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, when they heard that these people were worshiping them like gods, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It says they tear their garments like old school WWF Hulk Hogan, just like, "Mm," and rush out into the crowd at the audacity that these people would have to try to worship them. It says they say, we're just regular people like you. It's this amazing moment where Paul and Barnabas basically grab these people by the face and say, stop looking at us and start looking at him. And I love the language that they use. They say, turn from these vain things to a living God. Some translations say worthless things. Turn away from these worthless things and turn to a living God. Whatever it is that you're worshiping, be it yourself the things of the world, a person, a certain activity, I don't know what it is, whatever it is that has your attention that isn't God, you are being called to abandon those things because they can't save you 
and instead build your life around the only one who can, Jesus Christ. We have any Johnny Cash fans in here? More than first service, more than first service, but not a lot. So I might have to go further south to get more Johnny Cash fans or further west. If you don't know Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash was this prolific musician. He was a master storyteller. He built this one-of-a-kind musical legacy and and had all, all this fame. And the thing was, the guy could barely even sing, if you're being honest. But he had this gift for connecting with people. And his career spanned over a half a century, 50 years. Doesn't happen a lot. And at the end of his life, he'd build up this massive legacy with all this money and all these possessions. And over the course of his life, he'd had an endless number of relations with an endless number of women and an endless number of drugs. He'd experienced everything that the world has to offer. Then the last music video that Johnny Cash ever recorded before he died, he sings these words about all the things that he'd experienced and accumulated. He, he says it like this. He says, you can have it all. My empire of dirt. He says, you can have it all. My empire of dirt. Of dirt. He, he calls it dirt. The things that everyone fights so hard for in this life. The things that the world says, if you have these things, you've made it. Well, Johnny Cash, someone who had all of these things and had made it, at the end of his life, he says, it's all dirt. And the message runs parallel with Paul and Barnabas. The things you're worshiping, the things that you're trying to get life from, the things that you're giving your devotion to that aren't God, dirt. Some of you are worshiping dirt. And God is calling you to turn away from these things and to instead put him on the throne. So they say turn away from these vain things and turn to a living God and then they continue on. And they're messaging in verse 16. They say in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Basically what they're saying in this passage is they're saying that even for people who have never heard about God and never chosen to follow God, you can clearly look around at the things that he's created and you can see that there's an amazing creator at work says the rains from the heaven or the fruitful seasons, talking about nature, like the moments when you stand and look up at the stars or you sit on the edge of the ocean looking out or you're like at the foot of a mountain and you're just taking it in and like this feeling of awe and wonder just fills your chest that it's God reaching out to you and trying to connect with you. And that if you'll just open your eyes, you'll see that the evidence is all around you. There is an amazing creator and his creation is a picture of how good he is. And yet, the text says, even still, Paul and Barnabas barely stopped any of the people from trying to worship them. How is that possible? That they could be saying it straight. Because it's so hard, even with evidence, even with a clear presentation, it's so hard to move away from your own preconceived notion about who God is and actually embrace him for who he really is. You see, these Greek gods that the people are worshiping, in this case, they're worshiping Paul and Barnabas, but these Greek gods that people are worshiping, they're, they're just idols. And maybe you've heard the word idols. The thing is, idols don't have to be something you like get down on your knees and like bow down to. The truth is, idols are anything that capture the attention and love 
that you should be giving to God. And you know, I could go on and on and list certain idols by name and try to make certain people feel guilty. I'm not going to do that. The truth is, you already know what your idol is. You know what takes up your time. You know what has stolen your affection that was intended for God. And, And sometimes these things are even seemingly good things. But the danger in giving something, the attention and affection that was intended for God is that nothing else in the universe can sustain you. Only God can sustain you. And so anything else, whatever it is, everything else is temporary. Everything else passes away. Everything else will let you down. And we worship it. And we like to think of worship as singing songs. But the truth is real worship, genuine worship, boils down to what you spend your time with and what you give your attention to. And some of us are giving our time and attention in bulk to things that just aren't God's. Some of us are worshiping idols. And we need to hear that. And if you are, man, if it hasn't already, that's going to take its toll on your life. And so how long do we play that game before we just acknowledge, like, man, these idols, these things, they they don't fulfill me, they don't sustain me, they, they destroy me and they're killing me. They'll leave you feeling worthless and hopeless, but God offers freedom. He offers life. As Paul and Barnabas are still preaching this to the crowd, the text says, verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So from the cities that they just came from, Jewish people who did not agree with them, they rally a mob of people together and they travel all the way to where Paul and Barnabas are. They stone Paul to the point where they think he's dead and they drag his lifeless body out of the city. Now for the record, just to give you some context, this is a hundred mile trip, just around a hundred miles on foot. And so these people from Iconium and Antioch are so fired up and angry about what is being preached by Paul and Barnabas, that they rally a mob together and travel a hundred miles to try to stop the message. Isn't it amazing how passionate non-believers can be? Sometimes even more passionate than we are. Like, have you ever wondered why atheists are so fired up and expend so much energy trying to prove that God doesn't exist? Like, why are you dedicating your life fighting something that you don't believe is real? Like there's this visceral response to the message of the gospel like it infuriates some people. Why? Well, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, I think that people get so fired up by the message of the gospel and try to disprove God so strongly. I think they do that because if it is true, if Jesus actually is who he says he is, and he actually did what the Bible says he did by dying on a cross and coming back to life after three days, if all of that's true, then life just can't go on the way that it did before. If sin and death have been defeated, if that's true, then our old way of thinking and our old way of living, like, it has to change. If this is all real and it's not just another self-help, like, fix-your-life type of religion or program, if it's all true, then it actually requires that the old us must die alongside Christ and adopt our new identity in Him. If it's true, that means things will drastically change. And the truth is, deep in our human hearts, 
there is a stubborn and prideful monster that looks at God and says, you will not tell me how to live my life. Like, you will not tell me that I can't do whatever I want. And if your desire for my life is that my life be transformed to align to your will, then I will never bow down to you. Man, people are so set on doing whatever they want that they don't just ignore Paul and Barnabas. They travel a hundred miles to try to kill them. Because the message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching, it cuts too deep. It says, your life needs a new king because you make a terrible king. And your life needs a new savior because you make a terrible savior. You can't save yourself. And your life needs the one true God because whatever else you're worshiping, Man, it's not it. And the thing is, if, if we'll open our hearts to that truth, you'll see that it's true. Like, I, I've led myself down every wrong path, and I've chased things I shouldn't have, and I've been inconsistent, and I've lied to myself, and I've broken promises to myself, and I've wasted so much of my own time, and I've tarnished my own name, and I've given away parts of my own identity, like if anyone else in the world had done all the things to me that I had done to myself, I would say, dude, I am done with you. The old me, as attached to him as I was, was killing me. And so he had to go. And he had to be replaced with the one who has marked a clear path for me. The one who has given me a love and peace that I cannot comprehend the one who's granted me a confidence that this world can't touch, the one who holds true to every promise that he makes, and the one who is carrying me home day by day as we speak. He's a king worth bowing down to. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's a God worth losing everything for. But the thing is, if your understanding and image of him is warped, as it is with so many in this Lyconian crowd and so many in the world today, if your image of him is warped, then you won't see a God worth losing everything for. You'll only see a God worth running away from. And so I want to talk quickly about two things as we wrap up. The first thing I want to look at, I want to look at how our view of God gets warped and skewed. And then I want to talk about how we can get the clearest, most accurate picture of him. And so how does our image of God get skewed and then how do we get back to the real image? So first, how does our picture of God get warped? And I think really it comes down to three things. The first thing is that your experiences can warp your image of God. Your experiences can warp your image of God. The things that you've gone through, they're the things that form you and how you see the world and they also directly inform how you see God. So like if you grew up without a dad in your life, there's a good possibility that the idea of God being a good father is going to be hard for you to grasp. It's going to be hard for you to imagine that a father can actually be good. If you grew up around people, family, or friends who were overly critical or always highlighting what was wrong with you, then there are probably going to be passages in the Bible that you read with a tone that God isn't actually using. You might see God as trying to like be this master puppet over your, or your life and just trying to control you because he's power-hungry and manipulative because that's all you've ever experienced. For some of you guys, you've been fighting for yourself your entire life. Like no one has ever shown up for you. No one has ever loved you. No one's ever sacrificed for you. 
There's a possibility that no one's ever even truly known you. And so the idea of Jesus fully knowing you and fully loving you to the fact that he'd lay down his life for you, man, it might sound like this beautiful thing, but it's hard for you to embrace that because you've never experienced anything like that. And it doesn't even have to be bad life experiences. Like it could also, you could have also had people in your life who told you you were perfect in every way and that you could do no wrong. Maybe you've yet to experience loss or true brokenness in this life, and if that's you, it's going to be hard for you to acknowledge your own imperfection and need for God. Man, you have no idea how much the things that you've experienced in your life contribute to how you view and understand God, and frequently it can give you an image that's skewed. Because the truth is God isn't like the people in your life. Your experiences can warp your image of God. The second thing that can warp your image of God is, is what you've heard can warp your image of God. In the age of information and technology, there's no shortage of videos and audios and clips and memes and pictures and sound bites and articles like it just keeps coming and we're constantly fed with this information throughout the day. And the thing is, information and opinions about God are included in all of that. People who have no idea who God is somehow hold very strong convictions about him. You have people that will tell you that it is extremely important to God that America remain a powerful country. It's extremely important to God that the right person be in office, but God never said that. People will tell you that God made you perfectly just the way you are, and so if you have certain feelings or convictions or attractions or desires, like God wouldn't have made you that way if he didn't want you to live that way. And he certainly never said that. People will say that God has a plan for your life to be successful, and if you'll just work hard enough and commit hard enough that things are going to work out for you and you're going to be successful. Like, finish this for me. God helps those who help themselves. People think that that's a Bible verse. That's not a Bible verse. That's just something that someone made up. And we memorized it. We memorized something that's not a Bible verse. And that's not even scratching the surface. Like, there's so much information being put out there by believers, non-believers, atheists, even pastors. And a lot of it's just garbage, and it doesn't represent God for who he actually is. And so all I'm saying is be careful what you're taking in, because what you've heard can warp your image of God. Last thing that can warp your image of God is who you wish God was can warp your image of God. But we've talked about this. We want God to be made in our image. We want him to think like us and act like us and care about the things we care about with the same intensity that we do. Some people just want God to be a vending machine like, God, I will pray to you and I'll tell you what I want and you just give it to me and we'll be good. There's some people who actually, they want God to be an evil tyrant because if God's an evil tyrant, then they can justify walking away from him. A lot of people want God to be this loving, accepting of like any behavior and it doesn't matter what you do because that makes it easier to share him with our friends. Like now it doesn't matter what you do or how you act or what you love or, or, or how you spend your time or what you devote your life to because God loves you and as long as you say the right things and smile at the right time and say you love Jesus, like you're going to be fine. But none of these things actually represent God for who he really is and, and if our understanding of him is based on who we wish he was, man, you're playing a really dangerous game with your faith and so I think you have to ask yourself, 
Are you trying to write God into your story or are you allowing him to write you into his story? Well, I think a good God would do this. I I think a loving God would accept this. Be careful who you wish God was because who you wish God was can warp your image of him. And so how do we get to the real image? How do we get the clearest picture of God? Well, the truth is you do that by spending your time and energy working to better understand Jesus because the truth is Jesus is the exact image of God. Jesus is the exact image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God because Jesus is God. And so if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at the picture of Jesus. You have to look at what Scripture says about Jesus and you'll begin to understand Him. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Our greatest opportunity at a clear picture of God is found in a committed relationship to Jesus Christ. It's found in a desperate pursuit to understand him to know him as deeply as we are able to, and then a commitment to letting that Jesus be the king of our lives. You know, it goes beyond just mentally believing. Mentally believing is not enough. It's taking the life that you've dreamed for yourself, your own desires, your own selfish ambition, all the things that we want for ourselves, it's taking those and laying them down and saying, God, instead, I want what you want for me. I'm going to follow you. And it requires that we seek after him daily, not just on Sundays for an hour. It requires that we seek him through his word and seek him through prayer and seek him through community. And then as he reveals himself to us through these things, it requires that we build the very foundation of our lives around who he is. And I know that's super heavy and that seems like a lot and I won't downplay it, that is a lot. But the beauty of this type of desperate pursuit of Christ is that it will lead you to an understanding that he is the only thing in this universe worth bowing down to. You won't bow down to anything else. Like, he knows you. He knows it all. He knows where you failed. He knows where you're broken. He knows where you're hurting right now. Like, he knows you. And he is crazy about you. He says he came so that you could experience life to its fullest. He says he came so you could experience a love like nothing you've ever known. That you could experience an acceptance that this world can't offer you. This world only dreams about that type of acceptance. He says he came so that you could experience a peace that makes no sense to the people around you. And he died for you. He suffered so that you could receive that. And man, the gall and the nerve that it takes for us to ever think that we know a better way I could say a lot about that. I'm just going to say this. We don't. You just don't. Jesus is the only way. And the most amazing thing about getting an accurate understanding of him is that you will clearly see that. Jesus is the only way. And what happens when you experience Jesus like that? Well, Paul shows us after almost being stoned to death. 
It says, but when the disciples gathered around him, around Paul's lifeless body, it says he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconia and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This man, Paul, is almost murdered. He's almost murdered, lifeless body, out in the street, and he jumps to his feet and walks right back into the town where they almost just killed him and keeps talking about Jesus. And then he goes back through the towns where the people just traveled from to try to kill him. He walks back through all of those towns and he keeps talking about Jesus. And it doesn't matter what they do to him, he's never going to stop talking about Jesus because he has this accurate and beautiful picture of who Jesus is and he is enamored and captured by it. It drives his life. He gets it. It's the best thing in the universe to be known and loved by Jesus. Bowing down to him is the best thing you can ever do with your life. But the thing is, you have to understand him and commit to him based on who he says he is, and not just who you want him to be. And so I ask you again, who's God to you? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that we have an opportunity to know you. That we have an opportunity to have a relationship with you in which you pour into us and you give us a life that we never could have dreamed of. I thank you for the peace that you offer freely to us. God, we need an understanding of who you are. God, we need to lay down our idols. We need to lay down the dirt. We need to lay down whatever false image we've been following. And we need the clearest picture of you. But you are the only way that we can get that. God, I pray that as a community, we are committed to chasing after the real you. And when we find you, that we are just quick to lay down our own lives in exchange for the life that you have for us, God. I pray for everyone in this room wrestling with that. I pray for everyone in this room fighting with whatever false image of God they've created for themselves or or that's been given to them. And I pray that you give them eyes to see and ears to hear who you actually are and allow them an opportunity to respond accordingly to Jesus. We love you. We pray all this in your name, in your name alone. Amen.